So yeah, I, it was quite. That was fascinating to be all over uh, North Korea. Yeah. Negotiate. Uh, one time uh, they weren't cooperating, so I just took all of our staff, went to the airport, and we got on a plane and flew out. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to episode 139 of the Kamena Voice. Today, I interview the former president of World Vision International. Please welcome Dean Hirsch. Hi, I'm Brandon Erickson, and you're listening to the Kamena Voice Podcast, where I interview local business owners, comedians, singers, and more. I dive into their backstory to find out how they got where they are, what are some of the tips for you to do the same, and find out where they're going. Tune in every week as I interview more of the people you see every day. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Kamano Voice, where we release a new episode every Tuesday. How was your week going? Uh, we got our, um, let's see, what, what happened this week? Oh, uh, we had two of our good friends get married over the weekend, um, so that was fun, and now you're hearing this, and this is a week after that weekend, but regardless, um, yeah, so had a great wedding, uh, congratulations to them, um, and, um, uh, we wish them the very best, okay, that was my, uh, that's my weekly update, so, um, hope you enjoyed it, anyways, <laughs> um, hope your week was going well, so, <clears throat> today I'm interviewing, uh, the former president of World Vision International, so his name is Dean Hirsch, um, and for many of you, you probably already know, World Vision's a pretty large organization. Obviously, it's worldwide. Um, and uh, he, he worked with them for many years now. I should have written down how many years it was, and of course, I did not. But he worked uh, most of his career with World Vision, starting at the bottom and working his way all the way up to the president position. Um, and because World Vision is worldwide... Uh, and because of they're so well known in the world for what they do and helping people, whether that's with food, um, I think a lot of people think of them as like the people that like you support children through, uh, and they do have that. But they also provide food, water. They do all sorts of stuff all over the world. And um, so, as president of this organization, he got to work with many countries that were. Um, you know, that no one else can visit because they're shut down. You are not allowed to enter these countries. Uh, so as you heard in the opening, one of those countries was North Korea. Uh, and so we get into how they got in there, what they did there, uh, and how they made sure that the people that needed the food got the food instead of it just going to the soldiers or government officials. Um, so we get into all of this and more. It's a fascinating podcast. I'm so excited for this one to finally be releasing. Um, and so, yeah, without further ado, here's my conversation with Dean Hirsch. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Command of Voice. Today, I'm here with the former president of World Vision International. Welcome to the podcast, Dean Hirsch. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Yeah. So before we get started, tell us a little bit about Dean. Uh, Dean was born in uh, Los Angeles. Okay. Uh, when there were still in the area a lot of orange groves and lemon groves. Yep. And uh, grew up there and then went off to uh, college, uh, to a private school called Westmont uh, College, a liberal arts college in Santa Barbara. Okay. And uh, from there, uh, got a desire to start looking at trying to be a university president. Okay. So I went off to graduate school, but uh, got drafted for Vietnam. Okay. And decided that uh, I wanted to be an officer to tell people what to do. <laughs> so I um, uh, joined the Army, and I became uh, second lieutenant. Okay. And when I got my commission, four of us were called out and asked to go to IBM Computer School. Okay. And uh, I went to this, learned everything about the uh, 360, the 370, room full of computers oh, wow! <laughs> and uh, was involved in my um, army career of um, helping develop software and installing it across army posts. Okay. Uh, and one particular one was uh, Fort Lewis, Washington. Oh, nice. So I did that. Um, so uh, did that and then I got out of the army and uh, wanted to still pursue being a university president, but a friend of mine uh, contacted my wife and said, uh, come and talk to us at World Vision. Okay. And uh, so I went and talked to them, 
And at the lunch table, uh, these two fellows were very nervous. And at the end of the lunch, they offered me a job. <laughs> and I said, what's this about? And they said, well, the gentleman in charge of all of our IBM uh, computers that we have just resigned this morning, and he's going to Jet Propulsion Laboratory for a Mars mission. Oh, wow. Okay. And uh, we got to have somebody. Yep. And that's how I got with World Vision. Okay. So it was, uh, it was, it was a good journey. I never became a university president. <laughs> There's still time. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> awesome. So growing up in California then, um, what was your childhood like? I uh, grew up, and uh, my parents, we were very involved in the church. Okay. And this church had a gym, uh, and the wall, one wall was all glass windows so that the community would come in. Okay. So I grew up uh, with sports. Yep. And uh, volleyball and basketball. Nice. And uh, doing all types of things, <laughs> very active uh, youth group and very active community. So Okay. Uh, that was very good, and then uh, part of it, too, was uh, studying. Okay. Because I wanted to get to college. Yep. And uh, my parents didn't spend a lot of time tutoring me or encouraging me. Yeah. And uh, so I remember sitting and working through it and uh, up in the ups and downs, but uh, graduated and got off to college. Nice. Was, uh, were your parents, had they gone to college and stuff? My father had, yes. He okay. He had gone and... Uh, he was an executive with Sears Roebuck. Okay. Something of the past. Wow. <laughs> and uh, he was in charge of a portion of Sears Roebuck for the West Coast. Okay. So uh, very mathematical. Yep. Uh, and very involved. And a lot of people skills. He had tremendous people skills. Yeah. Nice. So, um, so there wasn't a big push from your family to go to college and get an education then? Well, my mother was very clear which colleges I was not going to. <laughs> she... Uh, <laughs> She was clear, you're not going there. That isn't hard enough. Okay. Uh, and said, you're going to, you know, you need a liberal arts degree. Uh, you need to be able to have critical thinking. Yep. You need to be able to speak, and you need to be able to write. Yep. And here are your choices. <laughs> nice. That's a true story. <laughs> okay. So um, so you went, to, you went to college to get your liberal arts, um, and then with the Vietnam War and everything, did you say you were, were you drafted or did you end I up? I was drafted, but in those days, when you have, when you receive your draft notice, you have 10 days to enlist. Okay. So what, my father, I was now in Indiana at graduate school, uh, studying college administration. Yep. And uh, my father would call me every week and tell me what's happening in California on the draft numbers. Okay. So we knew uh, I had a low number. Okay. <laughs> Many of you don't even understand that system. Yeah. But uh, I had a low number. It knew it was coming. So I went to all the services and did all their testing. Yeah. And see who would make me the very best offer. Okay. And uh, I wanted to actually be uh, in the Navy and uh, run a big aircraft carrier. <laughs> but uh, they did not make me a good offer. The Army actually made me a good offer. Okay. And uh, so I took that, and as soon as I got my draft notice, I just went in, saw the recruiter, <clears throat> and uh, we had done all the paperwork. Okay. And then he arranged so I could finish uh, the semester. Yep. And then I, I entered the Army. Okay. So was that, what was that like for you? Because like you said, many of us... Um, of my generation stuff can't like we haven't had that happen and so what was that like for you well it was very different because um, you were out on the uh, field the parade field at 5 30 every morning mm -hmm. and you ran five miles okay so uh, and the other thing is there was a lot of yelling yeah um, there was in your ear I mean part of the issue is uh, they were trying to break you Yep. Uh, because, you know, they assumed uh, we were all going to Vietnam. Okay. And uh, interesting, a lot of my class went to Korea. Okay. And uh, warmed themselves on top of tanks. Okay. So, uh, but, um, yeah, it, uh, it was very different. Very different than the, the university college setting. Yes, yeah. And uh, there wasn't a lot of intellectual discussion. <laughs> there was, and you went to class every day. Really? Okay. Uh, oh, yeah. We, uh, you'd had physical training, but I, you know, we went to classes, and uh, I learned a lot. And, uh, you know, one of the best things they did is they sent me off to a professional 
uh, public speaking school. Okay. And uh, that that was in- incredible. It was uh, very helpful. Yeah. And also, how do you make quick decisions? Yeah. Um, and then I was responsible for many men uh, at one time. And uh, how do you make sure that you take care of all of them, protect them, and uh, keep them on the journey with you? Right. So. Right. Okay. So um, then from getting back from that, that's when you went and entered into the, the, is that when you did the IBM school or was that during the army time? Uh, I did the IBM school right after my commission. Okay. And uh, then I, and part of it was in that time I was uh, involved in a company, tank company. Okay. uh, And and responsible for some men. But uh, then I went to IBM school. Then I got assigned to Washington, D.C. Okay. To Computer Systems Command. Okay. Of the Army. And uh, I was at a civilian firm. Okay. And all these people were designing uh, programs. A lot of you probably don't know what a punch card is. I've seen them. (laughs) They used to have punch cards. And uh, the clerks... Uh, would uh, punch in, you, you know, you'd fill out a card every day for your hours. Mm-hmm. They'd put it on a, they'd punch it into a card. Yep. This is another person. Yep. And then they'd uh, enter it into a scanner or a card reader. Yep. And then it would go into one of these big tapes and you'd merge these tapes. And uh, I was responsible for installations. Okay. Uh, to, and part of it was in the early days, uh, what happened was everyone was paid according to a time card. Okay, yep. Even people working for the Army. Okay. And so we designed a civilian payroll system. Really? Okay. And what that meant was it's the very first time that we no longer had to do all these laborious steps to get the final paycheck done. Right. And uh, so I got involved in that and then was uh, helped install it in a number of installations across the United States. Okay. Which wasn't always easy. Yeah. And uh, one of the very interesting things is I, I and others, we'd always meet the commanding officer, like at Fort Lewis, the general. Okay. And these generals saying, what, you are in your 20s and you're telling me what to do? <laughs> and part of my job was to try and be a buffer between officers, commanding officers, and some of the young uh, nerds <laughs> who were very bright. Yep. And I would say to these officers, you need these young men and women. Yeah. Because they were going to make you successful. Yeah. So. Wow. How did that go over? I feel like that would be, well, one, intimidating for you at your age to be talking to these, comm- these generals. Well, it, I, typically with the commanding officers and senior officers, I didn't have a problem. Okay. Sometimes it was with my peers who got quite angry <laughs> and frustrated. And it was so. It was their way or no way. Oh, and okay. And I said, "Look, uh, don't be right, but dead right." Yeah. <laughs> okay. Very cool. So then, um, so then you finally you exited the army, and then you were prepping to again go back into I was, pursuing school. I did. Well, I actually took a year and went off to a school, and I was the director of counseling. Okay. And uh, I enjoyed that, but. Uh, there were additional, you know, a lot of students didn't have an appreciation for veterans at that time. Yeah. And you'll know there, there was a lot of anger towards anyone that had served in the military. Right. And uh, a lot of nasty things were said. Yeah. And I said, I'll, I'll try something else for a while. <laughs> and ultimately, got my, through my wife, this friend called from World Vision. Okay. And uh, we had lunch. They offered me this job because uh, the other fellow went off the JPL. Yep. And that was the beginning of my journey. All right. So had you heard or known much about World Vision prior I to this? I had. Because okay. World Vision's founder was Bob Pierce. Okay. And he had really started World Vision in uh, China as well as Korea, the Korean War. Okay. Dealing with orphans. Yep. And he would come to the United States and <clears throat> talk. Uh, in different places, including churches and others. And my uh, parents would take me to his rallies. Okay. And I would tell my dad, uh, leave your checkbook at home because Bob Pierce had a way to be in everybody's pocket. (laughs) And uh, so, but that's how I knew of World Vision and Bob Pierce. Okay. And uh, really, but that wasn't the stimulus to get in. It was all through computers. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. So... 
then when you started with World Vision with the computers, what was kind of the state of that department and stuff? Well, it, it was running well, but they had uh, three different sites. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of your listeners will know uh, the IBM 360 series, mm-hmm. then the IBM 370 series. Okay. So we had one 360, which is a whole room. Uh, I mean, a whole room. <laughs> it's, it's not a, And these laptops have more power than some of these rooms did. Yeah. And then the 370s, which were even more powerful. Okay. But the issue is you had to change tapes, reels on all these. Wow. And um, you and you had to just make sure everyone did everything right, and they went 24 hours a day. Yeah. And if you made a mistake, you lot of, lost a lot of processing time. Wow. So that... Uh, so I, I, I did that, and it was great, but then I started learning more about World Vision, working in the world. Yeah. And uh, working with kids, uh, working with the oppressed, uh, those who had lost uh, through uh, damage storms and things. And uh, so literally, literally a year and a half later, I saw the vice president for all the work around the world. He was from Australia. Yeah. And uh, we got to be good friends, and he said, well, where do you want to go? I said, I want to go to Africa. Okay. And so uh, I only stayed in the computers for a little over a year. Okay. Because I got so interested, and so uh, my wife and I were assigned to Nairobi, Kenya. Okay. And uh, we, we lived in Nairobi, Kenya for five years. Uh, it was supposed to be a one-year assignment, but we stayed five years. And I traveled through, all throughout Africa. Okay. So I had been... Uh, 52 countries in Africa, and I've been to about 30 of them at that time. Yeah. And opening up offices in Ghana, uh, in the former Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. Okay. uh, In Tanzania, Zambia, uh, Malawi, and uh, traveled all the time. Yeah. All the time, and uh, got involved in a couple coups uh, in the former Zaire, which is now the Congo, and in Ghana. Okay. So uh, it wasn't all just a nice trip. Uh, yeah. Sometimes you were dodging some bullets. But... Wow. So what, what had led you to Africa? Why did you choose that? Well, because uh, my wife had a roommate who was serving as a missionary in Africa. Okay. And that was part of the uh, emphasis. And plus, the World Vision had gotten into television in the United States. Okay. It was the first uh, appeals for helping children and sponsor a child. And it was growing so fast, and Africa was opening up. Okay. And I said, you know, I'd like to be on the cutting edge. Yeah. And so that's what I ended up doing, is going there and working there. Why my wife worked at, in the Mathari uh, Nairobi, Kenya Mental Hospital. Okay. Uh, counseling. Yep. So Nice. So um, during the times where uh, there were coups or things going on, you had been in the army. Did you see action when you were in the army? No, never saw any action. Okay. Other than arguments about computers. <laughs> okay. So I don't, I I don't talk about it too much because a lot of my classmates they either went to Vietnam or they went to Korea, and uh, I was very blessed to uh, have an incredible assignment in the army. Yeah. So when you were there in Africa, then. What was that like for you when these situations started arising? Well, I knew how to protect myself. Yeah. And the first thing you learn, no matter what, even here in the United States, who's responsible for your safety and security? You are. Yeah. Don't be waiting on someone else. <laughs> and even today, I always look for uh, where's the exit? Yeah. How do you get out? Uh, what if my with my wife? How do I sure ensure that I protect her? Yeah. Um, and. You know, you just learn those things. Yeah. And they live with you. Yeah. And I use those a lot in Africa. Okay. Yeah. So then um, during that time, were you did you have to flee into different countries then when things started? Well, we had a case uh, in Ghana. Uh, we woke up to jets and the fighting, and we were at a guest house, and it was right there, a military. And so uh, there were three of us. Uh, okay. One person was from Africa. Uh, one person was for Germany and myself, and I wanted to leave, and uh, the, the country south of Ghana is Togo, Okay. and there's a river, and I said, look, we got to get ourselves that river and go across, and the only way is we're going to have to swim across, and the fellow from Africa said, there's no way, there's crocodiles in that river, and you won't get across, and I said, well, we didn't ever leave, 
we just stayed there. Okay. And uh, we hid for three days. Okay. Uh, literally, we hid behind a uh, block wall for three days while the fighting went on. Wow. But, okay. Yeah. All right. So then and during that time, were you um, in communication with anyone? or? Well, you know, we didn't have the cell phones. Yep. Uh, we didn't have, there weren't telephones per se. Uh, sometime, a couple of times uh, what I would do is you could go to the airport and you could talk to a pilot mm-hmm. and he would let you into uh, one of the commercial planes and use their radio system. Okay. And that's what I did. Okay. Uh, a couple of times, uh, particularly when I was in the Zaire. And, uh, you know, that's the only way to communicate. Yeah. And so I'd get a message out or get on the phone and uh, use, because they had sophisticated communications in the cockpits. Yep, yep. Very cool. So then over your time in Africa, what were some of your favorite countries you got to visit or certain areas? Well, I I love Tanzania. They're uh, at the base of Mount Kilimanjaro. Okay. it's one of the, everyone should go there to Arusha. Okay. It is fantastic. Go on safari there. Um, it's peaceful. It's quiet and beautiful with okay. the uh, Mount Kilimanjaro. I, I think too. Uh, I really uh, enjoyed. Uh, I enjoyed Kenya. Um, it was a great place to live. Yeah. It's on the equator. Okay. And so uh, perfect weather most of the time. Yeah. And. Uh, and, you know, for downtime, we would go on safari. And uh, so, you know, th- that was enjoyable to get yeah. out and see uh, God's creation and see all the animals. Yeah. Uh, so that was very good, too. And I also enjoyed uh, places like uh, parts of South Africa. Okay. Um, Cape Town. Yep. Uh, we had work all over in South Africa, and so got to see a lot of it and mm-hmm. get to understand some of the dynamics of the country. Yeah. You know, very cool. So um, at the end of those five years then, what kind of prompted you to end that time there and move on to something else? I was asked to come back and open up the office of World Vision in Washington, D.C. Okay. Uh, this is when the Reagan administration was in uh, the president of the United States. Okay. Uh, and the Reagan administration, they knew that the Berlin Wall was coming down, but they didn't know when. Okay. And Russia had collapsed, basically. Yeah. And Russia was no longer able to feed Poland, able to feed Hungary and others. And so uh, we got called uh, by the Reagan administration, and I met with his cabinet. Yep. uh, Because they wanted us and Catholic Relief Service to feed Poland. Okay. So the people wouldn't starve. And we discussed it, and we put a program together. And we, uh, I walked out of that meeting with $116 million based on a handshake. <laughs> but we started feeding Poland with Catholic Relief Service. Yeah. And uh, because it was desperate. Yeah. It was desperate. And, of course, then ultimately the wall came down and you were able to move more freely and uh, transport goods. Yeah. But uh, put, yeah, put that together and then expanded their office in Washington, D.C. Okay. So did you end up going to Poland at all, or were you just in charge of the? Getting no, the I went. Uh, yeah, I went over. I, I spent a lot of time in the in the countries that were behind the Iron Curtain. Okay. Because we quietly had work going on. Yeah. Uh, helping people, uh, particularly associated with the church and others who uh, were not in, who were not favored by the regimes that were in power. Yeah. And I met with some of the leaders of those countries and um, discussed and the importance of respecting rights. Yeah. And uh, putting relief programs together. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's very cool. Um, okay. So you, you moved back. That, did you, you move to Washington, D.C.? No. I commuted from Los Angeles. Oh, okay. And uh, did that. And then I ended up, uh, the big thing was, if you remember Bono, mm-hmm. and uh, We Are the World, and all the, this, uh, I was part of that. And uh, that was for the Ethiopia famine. Millions of people were starving. Yeah. And so uh, we, World Vision, just in Ethiopia alone, we had over a $100 million program. And I had overall responsibility in the United States to make sure this all worked. So I was going to Ethiopia uh, a lot. Okay. Uh, Somalia a lot. And uh, different places, but Ethiopia was the one that really faced the brunt of the drought. 
Yeah. And uh, we put that together. Okay. And uh, again, the U.S. government was extremely uh, generous to the agencies to help us with the food and setting up the feeding centers. Yeah. So when when these things are happening, I mean, I know there's there's people that are kind of have a pulse on what's going on in the world, but how did World Vision get involved in these different areas? Um, like, how did the information get to them, and how did World Vision be the ones that stepped forward and said, we will help take care of this? Well, thing? World Vision was, was one of the largest agencies in the world, mm-hmm. and still today it's probably the largest private agency in the whole world. Okay. And so, you know, governments knew about us, um, and so we, uh, we got invited in, mm-hmm. and we'd sit down. We always signed protocols. So in, whether it was an uh, Islamic country or whether it was a communist country, because yeah. at that time, uh, Ethiopia was run by the Russians. Okay. And, uh, but we always registered, yep. said who we are, uh, here's our non-negotiables. Yeah. And we always were allowed to work. Okay. And what were things that were considered non-negotiables for you guys? Well, first of all, that we are Christian, okay, and that uh, we believe Jesus loves all the children of the world. Yeah. So we made that very clear. Uh, the other thing is uh, ver- verify. Uh, we taught a lot of different leaders the word verification. Okay. We want to see with our eyes. Yeah. We're not just shipping. Yeah. Um, and we also said our grains and everything we we bagged it and we put uh, our appropriate label on it. So we could count the bags of grain. Okay. And you say did the same thing from the U.S. government. So. Yeah. The most interesting one, though, is uh, in the uh, late 90s, I got a call from North Korea. Okay. And uh, so I've been, I've been in North Korea five or seven times. I've oh, been wow. all over North Korea <laughs> because they had a terrible flood. Okay. And your listeners, some of them will know that North Korea should never have been an agricultural zone. It should have been industrial. Okay. And South Korea should have been the agricultural zone. So it's flipped. It's flipped. <laughs> and North Korea does not have the ability, even today, to feed itself. Okay. So even today, uh, China and the United States feed North Korea. Okay. And, uh, but we, I, we were called in, and um, so we negotiated. And uh, I said, we will not work in the capital city. Uh, they had a three... Uh, level on um, caloric intake. Okay. The army uh, got 100% or above. All the diplomats in their city got about 80%, and the okay. people in the rural area were fortunate if they got 60%. Okay. And so uh, we worked, and we uh, initially I said, I want to uh, have our programs all next to the prison camps. Okay. We don't have any prison camps. <laughs> and he said, well, if you look at Google here, they show up. <laughs> True story. Oh, my but, word. Um, we said, okay, we want to work next to the coal mines because the floods had flooded the coal mines. And as a result of that, uh, people didn't have work. They didn't have food. And yeah. so we did massive train loads of uh, grains and other foods out of China. Yeah. And then we set up noodle factories. Okay. We, we had about, uh, we set up five noodle factories in North Korea and they produced wet noodles. Okay. And why wet noodles? Because they have to be eaten the same day. And that way, we got them to the orphanages, uh, we got them to the elderly, and to the people that needed them. Yeah. And uh, none of our wet noodles ever got to the military. Wow. So it's, uh, so yeah, it was quite, that was fascinating to be all over uh, North Korea. Yeah. Negotiate. Uh, one time uh, they weren't cooperating, so I just took all of our staff, went to the airport, and we got on a plane and flew out and left. Um, and then I got a call from New York, went back and saw the ambassador in New York, and he said, okay, we understand. You only want to work with the children. You only want to work in the rural areas. I said, okay. Wow. And we so went back in. What was, for you, like, that's, I mean, that's a super intense situation of, like, it seems very scary. I mean, just from the media and you know media hypes things up but like that's a scary position to be in and to actually have to like draw lines and say no this is where we're going well part of the issue is we did respect uh their customs Mm -hmm. we never disparaged uh even though you had thoughts uh, because they had these posters anti-united states and things like that yeah 
uh, you know, we were there and we were diplomats and uh, Ronald Reagan had said in Ethiopia, very important point that many people don't know today, Russia controlled Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. But Ronald Reagan said, we as Americans cannot let any child die due to politics. Yeah. And I carried that into North Korea. Yeah. We can't let these kids starve. There's stunting, there's brain damage. We saw a lot of kids dying in front of us. Mm. And I said, uh, we got to help the kids. So we, but we were firm. Verification. Yeah. They learned it. Yeah. Uh, we go, went to every site and uh, we got out and saw everything and spent time uh, practically all over the country. I'm probably one of the few Americans that's been on each side of the DMZ. Yeah. And heard the propaganda from each side. <laughs> Wow, that's crazy. That's very cool. So um, when you've worked with these countries then, like you, you mentioned uh, Muslim countries or communist countries, when you guys came in and said we're a Christian organization, um, was that a sticking point? I would imagine that would be a sticking point for quite a few of these countries. You know, most of these countries needed world vision. Yeah. They needed help. And they were having, you know, they, a lot of times Catholic Relief Service would be there or care would be there but they knew world vision was big uh we were one of the biggest food movers yeah uh next to catholic relief service okay in the world and they needed us <clears throat> yeah so we had some very intense discussions uh we signed documents but it always worked yeah i think you know we only only once did we get uh expelled and uh, that was uh, in northern Sudan. Okay. But not the southern Sudan. Okay. Because that was uh, southern Sudan then became a country on its own. Yep. So. What was what was it that was the point where they kicked you guys out then, and what was the reason? Well, uh, part of it was because they felt that uh, our part of it was because we had so, very clear criteria on the relief that we would do. Okay. Where it would go, and. Uh, you know, we were decrying the fact that uh, they were killing some of their people. Yeah. And said, no, we're, you know, we, we just can't handle that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So you'd been doing all of this other travel then. You, you helped out in Poland and stuff. Um, what kind of happened after some of these things then? Well, what ended up happening was that uh, the president... Uh, a new president of World Vision International. There's about 100 World Visions in the world, and they all okay. report to the president of International. Okay. And uh, the new president of International asked me to become the chief operating officer. Okay. And so I became the chief operating officer of World Vision International. Okay. And did that for a number of years. So now I had about uh, seven vice presidents reporting to me yep. from of all different nationalities, and uh, they were now... We were now growing. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're, we're close to $2 billion and just a lot of issues in the world. Yeah. Whether, uh, you know, North Korea, whether it's Africa or uh, you'll recall the tsunami that hit in uh, what in that 2004, I think. Yeah. In Aceh, mm -hmm. December 26th. Uh, I was... Uh, Kept uh, having breakfast and heard it, and I told my wife, I said, I'm getting on a plane. And I immediately left and went to Aceh, and that's where, you know, over 200,000 people died because of wow. the tidal wave. Yeah. And there was nothing left. It was gone. Yeah. I met with the, the vice president of Indonesia and discussed and said, here's what we can do, and here's what we can't do, and... Uh, we signed a protocol, and we went to work. Wow! So, when you were then you were working as the uh, chief operate operation COO. COO. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then, so at that point, you were working worldwide. Then worldwide. Um, yeah. But you were still the one that would go boots on the ground if something major happened. If something major happened, I would I would get there. Okay. Because a part of it was to encourage the teams. Yep. Very difficult circumstances. Many of them were living in tents. Yeah. Uh, also to see how can we get more resources. Yeah. Uh, again, to verify the need and also meet with governments. Uh, the, US gov the U.S. government, the Canadian government, the Australian government, 
and the European Union. So yep. I've spent a lot of time in Brussels okay. uh, negotiating contracts uh, so that we could get assistance. Okay. Wow. So um, so you were working as the COO then for, for many years. Yes. Um, then how did that kind of transition, or where did you go next from there? Well, the president then, uh, for health reasons, uh, resigned, and uh, I became the new president. Okay. So in 1995 or so, I became the new president. Yep. And I remained until 2010. Wow. When my wife said, it's time. time. <laughs> she was very wise. Very cool. So what was that for you? Um, obviously, you started with the computers there. Yes. You had gone through all of these different sections of World Vision as you were doing it. Um, what was it? How was it? different, I guess, when you were the president of overseeing this massive organization? Well, I now had uh, my own COO that reported to me dealing with daily operations. Yeah. Now I was meeting with world leaders. I was meeting with corporations. Uh, The World Economic Forum in Davos every year where all the world leaders and corporate leaders go. Uh, I attended that for 10 years. Wow. And uh, for World Vision, as well as other groups, CARE and others, uh, it costs, yeah, first of all, membership is a million dollars. Okay. And then to attend the week is 30000 We didn't have to pay any of that. Okay. But it was still very expensive for the hotels and yep. dinners. Dinners were over $100 a night. And I said, I can't spend donors' money on that. Yeah. So I volunteered to speak. Okay. All the time, <laughs> and uh, you you know I with many different world leaders, uh, you'd be on the panel with them, or I debated the uh, minister of agriculture of France one time, and uh, he would you know France is the worst offender on subsidies in the world. Okay, they give more to their cows, individual cows, than they do to their children. Wow! And so I debated him on that. And at the end of the debate, and, you know, there's hundreds of people there. And uh, at the end, he throws his hands in the air and he says, I have to do what my constituents want. (laughs) Well, I'm not sure his constituents wanted every cow to have such a high subsidy. But that, you know, I met a lot of world leaders. Yeah. uh, Some of the best, some of the worst. Yeah. It was very interesting, though, in meeting these, and I met some of the worst. uh, That, But they all love the children of their country. Yeah, even that's the worst of them. <laughs> that's right. And, you know, well, how does that work? Yeah. How does that work? Yeah. And um, so... Wow. So, yeah, I think I do find that interesting about human psychology. Um, I've listened to some talks about it and that <clears throat> regardless of how far gone we may, may be as a human being, our brain cannot believe that we are in the wrong, yes. even when we're very clearly in the wrong. Yeah. And our brain will always figure out a way to make it so that it's justified. That's right. You are you're exactly right. Uh, very hard for some uh, political leaders in every country, including yeah. ours, to accept they might not be exactly right. You right. Know? And there might be some other views uh, that should be considered. Yeah, exactly. So... so when you're at those in those situations, when you see that many different people from our world leaders from around the world, for you, what was that like being around that many different types of people and, and talking with all of them? Well, uh, you know, uh, part of it was being prepared. Okay. Understand what the issues are. Mm-hmm. Uh, understanding uh, the nuances. Uh, don't fly by the seat of your pants. Um, and try and be an expert on something. Okay. So I, my focus was uh, I met with the head of the International Monetary Fund, spent a lot of time with James Wolfenson, the president of the World Bank, and I said, look, I know you have these policies, but I do not want you to get rid of the safety net for children. Yeah. Particularly women and children. So I always talked about safety nets. Okay. Because, you know, the IMF does structural adjustments in countries. Okay. And, uh, you know, you don't want people being hurt. Yeah. But you know that structural adjustment has to take place. Yeah. And so I'd always speak about safety nets. Uh, when the... You were too young to even remember the riots here in Seattle when the World Trade Organization... Uh, okay. In Seattle, and they broke all the windows out. 
Oh, okay. Uh, and everything. And so uh, James Wolfenson, uh, I was called in with six other leaders from around the world in unions and things, and he didn't want that happening at the next meeting. And I said, well, you got the wrong people around the table. What you've got to do is you got to get some of the rock throwers in the room. Yeah. But with Wolfenson and also the World Trade Organization of Michael Moore okay. of New Zealand, he was uh, on the top, on Time Magazine, he's the most hated man in the world. And I met with him and I, in Geneva and I said, Michael, you'll never saw, see me throwing a rock or putting bad words in the news week or something about you. Yeah. I'm going to see you in your office and I'm going to look you right in your eye and I'm going to tell you what you're doing to the kids of the world. Yeah. Well, from that, um, it, that was an interesting piece because he then called me a couple of weeks later and said, I want you to come to Geneva and debate me. Okay. I, want, I am going to say all the good that the World Trade Organization's doing, and I want you to debate me and tell me what we're not doing right. And uh, George Soros is going to be our referee. Okay. And so um, I, my, here's my premise that I, I debated that what the World Trade Organization was doing to Africa, to Latin America, and parts of Asia, if they had done that to the United States and Britain, the United States and Britain would still be developing countries today. Wow. And so I, I attacked them on policy. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the lack of free trade, the issue of subsidies. And that... That really then went all around the world in the news, and I got a lot of speaking engagements. <laughs> Probably too many. <laughs> okay. So um, something that's come up a couple times now um, <clears throat> through our conversation is you've mentioned subsidies of countries that do them and don't. And I know every country does them to some degree. Yep. What is it? that you've seen as a, maybe as more of a general rule that you've seen that subsidies do um, in the negative sense? Well, uh, one thing is uh, the, uh, per, the EU, the Europeans, I mean, they're working on it, but uh, what they do is they prevent finished goods from Africa, okay. like cheeses and things like that, from entering uh, Europe. Okay. The United States has very strong rules on subsidies, too, and about things that can come in. But going back to the Bush administration uh, and then the Clinton administration, they started lessening the restrictions and using subsidies to help uh, farmers. Okay. Uh, to help uh, with one of the big things was in the United States, you know, we have a, we have a weather station in every place, Camino Island, you can go and see it. Yeah. Every place. In Africa, there were only about, in all of Africa, there may, might have been 10 weather stations. Whoa. And uh, helping in that to, to help them with weather patterns. Yeah. And to understand, you know, the rains are coming or the floods are coming. Yeah. And so that, that gets into, you know, subsidies are more than just food, but it's also helping uh, to uh, prevent a devastation from storms and things like that. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. So, um, what were uh, what are some of your like favorite memories of working with World Vision? I think the favorite memory is the people. Yeah. As I said, we are close to a hundred countries. Um, all these different people, uh, a rich heritage in each of the countries. Yeah. Some of the countries desperately poor. Uh, but everyone was working hard uh, to make a difference. Yeah. And I and I, I went to all the all these offices, and the first thing I do is I went around to every cubicle desk and shook hands and thanked every person. Yeah. Every office, and uh, then you know and meet with them here and listen to them. I would yeah. listen very carefully. I wouldn't make any quick judgments. Yeah. Uh, and then I'd say, well, what if we try this, or what do you suggest? Yeah. But it was the people. Yeah. It was the people. And, you know, and then they introduce you to other people, and uh, just meeting government leaders and uh, meeting uh, many different church leaders, and it was rich. It was yeah. rich. Nice. So you also, being the president of this organization, you've obviously got so many people that are underneath you and that you have so many things moving. 
how did you on a day-to-day basis? Cause I, you know, I have a small business here and I feel like in a day-to-day I get like 5% of the work I was trying to get done and the rest of it's all, you know, running around doing something else. How did you stay focused and how do you keep moving forward on these massive projects that you have going on when you have so many people reporting to you? Well, I spent a little time at the Harvard Business School. Okay. And the only thing I remember that was beaten into my head, stay focused. (laughs) Stay focused. That's my advice to you. (laughs) Don't be distracted. Okay. Okay, you got to stay focused. Uh, The other thing is only your direct reports... Only put people in there that you totally trust. Okay. Totally trust. There's got to be strong trust. Yeah. Because you cannot afford, your time's too valuable to micromanage. Okay. And uh, make sure everyone understands the direction, uh, the strategy that you have, yeah. and where you're going. Yeah. And then be very clear about what your expectations are Yeah. for them. Okay. And that's what I did, uh, you know, and I, it was a great team. Yeah. I had total trust in them. And uh, if they didn't agree with me, they told me. Yeah. And I listened. Yeah. I would always listen. So, but uh, you got to have a good team. Yeah. When you're, you know, in a, when you have 40,000 employees and you've got uh, in all these countries. Around and, the world, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, and every now and then, you know, I would pick up the phone and call our, na- I'd call a different national director every day. Okay. And I'd just say, how's it going? And if I read something in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or something like that, I'd immediately send off an email to them. Yeah. And so I just saw this. And then every one of our senior staff all around the world got a personal letter from me every year. Okay. I mean, just connection. Yeah. yeah. Connection. Yeah. Well, that's, that's much harder to do in such a large organization yeah. as well. Well, you have a few staff that work yeah. for you. A few people to help you out. Yeah. That's right. Very cool. All right. Well, I like to end every podcast with some rapid fire questions. Uh, the first one is what purchase of $100 or less have you enjoyed the most in the last three months? Uh, breakfast at uh, Farmer's Cafe. Okay. I enjoy that. Nice. They're a great team. Yeah, I've heard about them quite a bit, and I checked out their menu. I tried to meet my dad up there one day, but it didn't yeah. work out. Right next but. to the Chevron station, I think it is, yep. across from Hagen. Yep, yep. It's a great place. Awesome. Yeah, I need to check that place out. Yep. Who is the most influential person outside of your family in your life? I had an influential, uh, Valder Sternago. He's from Brazil. Okay. Uh, he, um, he taught me, you know, things aren't going to always go your way. And he said, there's a lot of mosquitoes. And he said, once in a while, you're going to swallow them. Just get used to swallowing some mosquitoes. <laughs> so accept it. It's not going to always be the way you want it. <sighs> and don't ruin your life over it. Very cool. All right. So this is a fill-in-the-blank question. So I know this is weird, but I've always wanted to blank. I would love to be able to call different world leaders together, even those that are involved in a war right now, Yeah. and sit down and work the thing out and find the common ground. Yeah. Um, You know, uh, years ago, I was in Ethiopia, met with the president of Ethiopia, the foreign minister, and their biggest worry was their troops were bringing AIDS home. Okay. From up in Eritrea. Yeah. And my issue is quit spending all your money on your army for a worthless war and put your money into capturing water when it rains so you don't have these famines yeah and build dams yeah and you know i enjoy that yeah Uh, i met you know i've met with one of putin's classmates just one-on-one and uh that that that's for another podcast (laughs) okay but uh fascinating yeah you know and uh we got to sit down yeah we're all we're we you know, we are global citizens. Yeah. And we have a responsibility to each other and to find a way to coexist and move forward. Yeah. 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 I, I, and I think even like when you look even across the U.S., that's finding being harder and harder to do on a national level, much less an international level. Well, I think you and I should fire the entire Congress. There we go. Let's and, move forward. Uh, we'll move forward. <laughs> you can be the president. Oh, I don't know yeah. about that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, both sides. Both yeah. Sides. Come on. 
for sure. Let's have a talk. Let's deal with these issues. There's a lot of complex issues. There are. Yeah. And uh, let's get off the simplified versions of everything. Yes. And deal with uh, real substance. And let's get some creative solutions going. That's right. Yeah. All right. Who is an interesting or fascinating person that I should interview next that I can actually get a hold of? So, Charlie, <laughs> Do you know Charlie Keith? Uh, I don't know if I do. Well, Charlie, Charlie Keith, he worked for World Vision. He is pro, he's one of the top fun friend raisers in the whole United States. Okay. I mean, the guy's incredible. Okay. And uh, let him tell you some stories. All right. That, uh, yeah. Very cool. All right. And lastly, what piece of advice would you give your 20-year-old 20, 20 self? Well, uh, be patient, enjoy the journey, and remember, everyone you meet going up, you're probably going to meet again and met while you're going down. And people have long memories. <laughs> so, you know? Yeah. But, um, everyone I meet, I try to affirm. Yeah. In some way. Yeah. Even That's the, you know, cool. Just... You're going to meet them going up. You're going to meet them going down. Yeah. Yeah. And, I think uh, that's really important, especially with what you were saying before is when it comes down to the things about working at World Vision, it wasn't the traveling. It wasn't the, the projects. It wasn't anything. It was the people that you got to meet along the way. It was the people meet. And, you know, my, my goal in life, everyone I communicate with and <clears> touch, um, are they, did they leave encouraged after I spent time with them? Yeah. That's what it's about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, very cool. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. All right. And Islanders, I will talk to you on the next one. Well, a big thank you to Dean Hirsch for joining me on the podcast today. And thank you for listening. If you haven't already, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to tell your friends and do all of those things. I've completely lost where I was going with that. Um, but that makes this a fun uh, outro. That's the word. Anyways, uh, for more information on this episode, you can go to commandocommons.com slash podcast. That's commandocommons.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.